I invite you to join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 8. Last week we were in Psalm 7, and this week we are going to explore the next one in the Psalter. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, until you open our eyes to see your truth and your glory and your beauty, we remain blind. And so, Father, would you be pleased to continue to open our eyes to see what is before us in your word. Until you open our ears to hear your call, your call to, as to what to believe and, and what to do, Father, we remain deaf to your voice. And so, Father, would you unstop our ears? Father, would you not just inform us through your word, but would you be pleased by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit to continue your great work of transforming us, enabling us more and more to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ until that great day ahead when what we see dimly now we will see in full and face to face. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've noticed thus far in our series that the Psalms cover every human emotion from the depths of utter despair to the heights of sheer delight. These Psalms are poems They are songs of praise, songs of lament, songs of thanksgiving. They serve to orient us to God and His ways. And when we find ourselves disoriented, it serves to reorient us. It's tough to read the Psalms fast. I know um, we can speed through it, but the Psalms benefit us most when we slow down and think, and read, and pray, and meditate. It's poetry. It looks like poetry. It is poetry, conveying truths about God. And these truths appeal to the whole person. And in doing so, they demand a total response. And just in a little while, we will participate in the Lord's Supper. By faith, we will feed on Jesus Christ. Also, We are called to read these psalms, this portion of God's Word, by faith. By faith. And in doing so, we find ourselves not just informed, but also transformed. Now, Psalms 1 and 2, which we we did last summer, serve to introduce us to the Psalter. It serves as a great introduction of the whole of the 150 psalms. And we've had a series now of five psalms, psalms 2 through 7, that have been psalms of lament. And from those psalms, we've learned how to vent in a godly manner. We've learned, we're beginning to learn how to complain before the Lord and ask for His help. But Psalm 8 here is a change of direction. It's a change from a psalm of lament to a psalm of praise. Indeed, Psalm 8 is the first experience of joyful praise and adoration from beginning to end in the Psalter. And so now we're also 
to learn how to praise God in a godly manner. Now, does praising God come naturally? No. No, it doesn't come naturally. And so we need to learn how to praise in a godly manner. We need God's Word. God's Word is going to be like a road on which we travel with both the destination and the journey itself in view. God's Word is going to be like a center line on a road with busy traffic. It's going to be like lines on the edge and at times it's guardrails to keep us from going off the road into the valley below. Earlier this week, in preparation for the meeting about the Children's Christian Education Program, I read the book Parenting in the Pew. And in the early chapter, the first chapter, I was struck by these words. In this first chapter, the author writes this, God desires our worship. He commands it. His word trains us in how to love Him, how to worship Him. The children of Israel, we and our children, must be trained to worship. I've learned along the way and in my study of Scripture that biblical worship is partly intended to help God's people remember, rehearse, and reenact God's great story of salvation. To enter into that story week after week with one's children is a great reminder of our place in that story. It's good for us to realize that we are not the star of God's story, but that God is the ultimate means and ends for faith and life for ourselves and our children. We're going to explore this portion of God's Word together. And join with me as I read Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, I believe that Psalm 8 helps to train us how to love God, how to worship God, by showing us at least three things about worship. That is worship of the one true and living God. First, it shows us that worship is a matter of our obedience. Now, where do we see that in our text? How about verse 1? David's first words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic 
is your name in all the earth. We don't know what David's situation is here. You see that title to the choir master according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. Kind of another musical, liturgical term. We actually don't know what it means. But it's attributed to David, but we don't know his situation. We don't know what caused him to compose this this psalm, this song. David's situation may not be known, but what is known is his calling. You know, when everything seems to be going well, when everything looks good, I mean, doesn't it seem easy to worship God? I mean, if you got money in the bank and food on the table and clothes on your back and People, are, you're enjoying good relationships. Yeah, praising God, easy, right? Or so it seems. But when everything seems to not be going well, when it's difficult, when relationships are strained, when money is tight, it doesn't seem as easy, does it, to worship God from a purely emotional standpoint. Well, what is the situation here in Psalm 8? Is David enjoying a, a, a day of ease? or a day of hardship. We don't know. However, what we do know is David worships. He's he's declaring to God God's worth and he's giving back to God the glory that's due him. First and first, first and foremost, David acknowledged who God has revealed himself to be. Notice, O Lord, our Lord, He is Lord. He is the covenant God who's come into a personal relationship with His people. He is Yahweh, the Lord. The promise-making, promise-keeping God. But He's also Lord. He's also King, ruler. That personal God is also ruling and reigning. O Lord, our Lord. Well, while David's situation, again, is unknown... His attitude and his actions are known. He worships. He understands the history of Israel that we heard read in 1 Chronicles 17. God's people, Israel, were called to be his people, called to be a blessing, called to worship him. Remember Abraham, God calling a people unto himself. Remember Moses, God used Moses to call people out of slavery in Egypt. Why? to worship God, to worship the Lord, to serve Him, as we read several times in Exodus. Now, what is our present situation? For some of you, it may be at the moment everything is is at ease. For others of you, everything may be uphill, in the wind, in the dark, in the rain. Although our situations and circumstances change, whether we're on a downhill slope or a a flat surface or uphill, whether either one of those be the case, we remain called to do something, to worship God. Our situation may change. Our calling is inescapable, both to be and to do. Who are we created to be? Who are we created and made to be? What are we created to do? What are we made to do? Those are important questions. I'm afraid that many of us and many of our friends don't want to take the time to ask those kind of questions. 
Why are we here? What are we made to do? Well, those of you familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism should have an answer. What is the chief end of man? What is the highest? What is the ultimate end of man? What is the chief purpose for which God made man? Of course, the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To worship God. Paul in 1 Corinthians sums it up well. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do everything in acknowledgement of who God is. The call to worship. Well, what is worship? What is this area in which this psalm helps us understand that obedience is demanded? If you, if you think about worship, it's an old English word, worth-ship. It's seeing what God is worth and giving Him what He is worth our love, our trust, our obedience. I can't help but think of what's on our website, what's on our postcard. To be human is to worship. Followed by the question, who or what are you worshiping? Now I want us to think for a moment about our feelings when it comes to worship. Sometimes, sadly, feelings are the locomotive. Hey, children, what's at the front of the train? Where does the train get its power? What's it called? I just said it accidentally. What's it called? The locomotive, the engine, right? And sometimes we let our feelings be the engine, be the, um, be the power for our life and train. And feelings and emotions are good, aren't they? And they're powerful. And psalms of all places helps us better get a godly understanding of our emotions and feelings. But they are not to lead. They are not to be the engine. They are not to be the locomotive. What is to be at the head of the train, supplying the power? It's, of course, this obedience. It's a duty. It's a duty. But you know what? As I hope we will see, that duty becomes a delight as the train keeps rolling. The feelings come along with the duty as the train keeps going. Well, today you hear a call. We need to be authentic. We need to keep it real. You know, hypocrisy has never been in, but it's really never in. But my friends, obedience is not hypocrisy. Obedience is obedience. And we are called to worship. So whether he feels like it or not, we just don't know. We don't know. Whether he feels like it or not, David worships God. He acknowledges God for who He is. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. But not only is worship a matter of obedience, we see that worship is a correction to our vision. Well, why do we need our vision corrected? Well, some of you are wearing glasses, so I can tell. Some of you are wearing contacts, what are contacts also known as? Corrective lenses. Because we can't see well. We need our vision corrected. And what has caused us not to see well? The, the fall of man into sin. We don't see things the way they really are. We've put our own sinful spin on what we see. Our vision of God and of ourselves at best is cloudy and distorted. 
More than that, we are blind until God opens our eyes. Indeed, as I've said before, you can change the location, you can move, you can change the scenery, but you can't change the view. Why? Because the view is your vision. It's you and how you see things, and worship serves to correct our vision, both of God and ourselves. Some of you may be familiar with uh, John Calvin, uh, the Swiss reformer, his um, or the, the French reformer, excuse me, um, who spent a lot of time in Switzerland, um, his magnum opus, his, his work that he's most well known for, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I encourage any of you to get a copy. It is not dry and dusty and academic. Calvin's motto was, Lord, I offer my heart to you promptly and sincerely. And it is a wonderful, warm Book. And here is how Calvin starts this massive two-book work with uh, book one, the knowledge of God the Creator. And chapter one in book one is this, the knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected. How are they interrelated? And in section one is this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And section two, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And section three is this, man before God's majesty. Man before God's majesty. I wonder if Calvin had Psalm 8 in mind, because what we are going to see is man before God's majesty. Because first, worship corrects our vision of God, who God is and what God has done. Who is God? He has revealed Himself as the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord, Yahweh, Lord as it were in all caps, but He's also revealed Himself in His rule and reign as Lord. But He's also revealed His glory as the Creator, the One who has made the stars And we think that David must have composed this at night because you don't see the sun mentioned. You see the moon and the stars and then other aspects of God's creation. What God has done, He has created the world. He has created man. And verses 3 through 8 are unfolding the excellence of God in creation. But worship corrects not only our vision of God, but also our vision of ourselves who we are and what we've been created to be and called to do. Because we see in this, man is made in the image of God. It's an echo of Genesis, the first chapters of Genesis. Man made in the image of God, male and female. We read, he created them. And we see in this psalm, which echoes the first chapters of Genesis, that God is interested in and he cares for his creation. And that man is the highest of his creative acts. And man is made to rule the earth. This is where you see the cultural mandate where God has given mankind delegated authority and responsibility to take care of the earth, to rule well. Well, what is the initial effect of this corrected vision of God and ourselves, of God as the creator as man as the highest creation set to rule. Listen to these questions and answers 
from the first catechism that many of our children begin to learn and memorize at an early age. The question is this, what is the initial effect of a correct vision of God and ourselves? Listen to these questions. Who made you? And children, if you hear the question, feel free to answer. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? Ready? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And finally, verse uh, question five. Um, why are you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. This is Psalm 8. God is exalted and yet man is humbled by his position in the world. And you see that man is put in a place of insignificance. I mean, as David looks up at creation, he wonders, God, why are you in personal relationship with me? I, I'm nothing. Look at the stars and the heavens. I, I, I'm, I'm nothing. And yet, we see that man, God exalts man. He's made in the image of God. He's called to be a ruler of God's world. The biblical view of man is, is that man is both low, he's in, insignificant in one sense, but also high. Man is significant. And this, I believe, is where we need to really camp out on the both and. You know, there are either ors in Scripture. You're either dead or alive. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. But there's also a both and. And here we see in this psalm that man is both nothing, but man is also something. And we need the wisdom to know the difference between the both and and the either or. But because of sin, we don't reflect the image of God very well and we don't rule his creation very well. And so although man is made in the image of God and he's ordained to rule, man has turned his back on God. Man has a problem. But God has provided a solution in an unexpected way. Now, I want to, before we go on, I want, to, I want us to think about something. Um, sometimes I get comments from others in the community who say, you're the church that believes that men are, are sinners, right? And I'm like, yeah, we, we do believe in sin. We do believe that people disobey God and we do believe that there are some serious consequences for that but you know if that's all we say we've not said enough because what we also need to say you know what man is also very special man is the high point of God's creation that's why many of us are actively involved in in, in promoting and preserving life because man is significant he's the high point of God's creation but you know what man is also sinful but man is significant. But man is sinful. Our church has got to be able to hold the both and. Because the proud need to be knocked down and the ones who are in despair that they are nothing and no one need to be lifted up to see who they are as a creation of God. But most importantly if they come to faith in Christ, who they are in Christ. 
my friends, if we had a, a, a new name for the church, I think it would be the church of the both and and the wisdom to know the difference between the either or. So man has a problem, but God has provided a solution in an unexpected way. You see, worship does more than just correct our vision. How we see things. Worship changes our lives. Worship is where the means of grace, the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer are most concentrated. Worship is a display of the Gospel. Now, I want to draw your attention to the first item that's always there in our announcements. Does anybody ever pay attention to that first bullet item? Well, I want you to um, read it, or listen to it read. Information and transformation. The gospel is not only a message from God announcing good news, Ephesians 1.13, it is also the power of God to change us. Romans 1.16. The gospel is not just information, it is also transformation. And every so often in our bulletin, we include the first of why do we do what we do in worship with an explanation of the order of worship. And we read this, here at Grace and Peace we follow an order of worship that is designed for the purpose of keeping before us Two essential realities. First, corporate worship has as its audience the one true and living God. Second, because we are prone to forget the good news of the gospel, corporate worship should, by its very structure and biblical content, remind us of the gospel week after week. And just as the gospel shapes the individual life of a believer, so also the gospel should shape the corporate life of the church, and in particular, the corporate worship of the church. So here, we see that unfolding in Psalm 8. Look at the ending of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It might have been a duty at first, but by the end of the Psalm, it's a delight for David. And you can't really tell the difference, can you? It's the same words. But David is being transformed as he's before the Lord. Because worship rehearses the gospel. And we see not just that, but it, it is a reversal of the world's values, the strong. Notice earlier, God has enemies. He has avengers and and foes, but it's versus the weak, babies and infants. Corporate worship week after week is a rehearsal of the gospel. Psalm 8, man is nothing, but also man is something. He's both humbled and yet bold. And the paradox is this, man is more sinful than he would think he is, but he's more loved and accepted in Christ than he could ever imagine. Here, the gospel of weakness, as Paul would write to the Corinthians, the gospel of weakness triumphs over the wisdom of man, the strength of man. The gospel is that death brings life, that the way up to God is down in humility before Him. Worship readjusts our attitude, it reorients our affections, and it realigns our actions to God's Word. And this readjustment, this reorientation, and this realignment of worship 
points us to Jesus Christ. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus has um, come in to Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. He's cursed a uh, fig tree. He's being um, questioned. Excuse me, before he curses the fig tree, if you look at verse uh, 15, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what, they are, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Well, wait a minute. David's writing about praising the Lord. The voice of infants and babies praising the Lord. And here, Jesus is attributing it to himself. The weak and the insignificant silence the strong religious leaders. Psalm 8, Jesus is saying, is about me. Because grace is a person. It's the man, Jesus Christ, as we've seen in Titus 2. It's the difference between the idea and concept of grace and the person of grace. Because these psalms are prayers and songs about and to a person. They are intensely personal. And Hebrews chapter 2, the author gets around to saying pretty clearly that Jesus is the man. He's the perfect man. He's the representative. He's the model. Jesus as the ideal Davidic king. He's the ideal Israelite. He's crowned with glory and honor. After his suffering, Jesus is the one who puts all things under his feet. He's the one that does what man has been called to do but hasn't done. Both Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament point to this psalm being fulfilled in Jesus. And so in giving us a right view of God and ourselves and in displaying the gospel and pointing us to Jesus Christ, worship, especially corporate worship, does one more thing. It moves us toward one another in love. Worship changes how we, how we view one another. Because two people that sing, a church that sings this song, are drawn to one another and move toward one another. Why? Look at verse 1 and look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord. Do you realize what happens when two people sing this together? They're worshiping the Lord together. They're moving toward one another in love. Let's wrap up by acknowledging that Psalm 8 should leave us asking one particular question. Not of other people, but rather of ourselves. One question to ask in view of Psalm 8's dominant statement that appears at the beginning and end and is supported by everything in between is this. The statement is this. The name, who God is, what He has done, the name of the Lord is majestic in all the earth. 
So the question is this, is the majesty of the Lord, is the name of the Lord on display in your life? If it's in all the earth, is it on display in your life? If it's not, where is it majestic? The name of the Lord is majestic in the lives of those who have a biblical view of both God and man. And therefore, His name is majestic only from the lips of those people who believe and live in response to the good news of the gospel of God's grace found in Jesus Christ alone, the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, the one who came to save sinners. The one to whom these words point to and draw attention to. My friends, may we individually, may we as families, and may we as a congregation, more and more with all sincerity and honesty, in both confidence and humility, be able to not only say, but really believe and live out these words. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth in my life, in this church. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this psalm of praise. I pray, Father, that You would give us the teachability. Give me the teachability to know that I need to be taught and trained how to worship You. Father, what arrogance I display and we display when we, when we worship you from our own imaginations and our own devices. Lord, would you give us the humility to trust that you, our Father, really does know best. Oh, Father, we desire that your name be magnified and glorified. Would you help us do that as we trust not in ourselves, but in our risen, reigning, and returning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.